Mission log, no star date. For us, time does not exist. McCoy back somewhere in the past has affected a change in the course of time. All Earth history has been changed. There is no Starship Enterprise. We have only one chance. We've asked the Guardian to show us Earth's history again. We will go back into time ourselves and attempt to set right whatever it was that McCoy changed. This is the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast. Ah, hello, cadets, and welcome back to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast. For this, another episode in our third ongoing series. Uh, like the second series, it is, of course, themed, as you'll know if you've been following us by now. Uh, we're on the theme of time travel. And to that end, as you will have seen on social media and on your screen and everything as usual, uh, that we're looking at the somewhat famous original series episode, The City on the Edge of Forever, the first real delving into time travel that Star Trek did. Uh, but I'm not on my own. I'm Mike, obviously, your your usual sort of host or co-host. I am joined by my usual co-host, DK. Hello. <laughs> and we are joined by returning guest from the Enterprise Future Tense episode and many, many others and various hundreds of things around the internet, Will Templar. Hello. Hello. Mike wishes I wasn't here. I absolutely do not. I'm just glad that <laughs> everybody's here. I'm glad I'm here with you this time, because for Future Tense, it was just you and DK. So at least uh, we've got all three of us now. DK's my um, boy. <laughs> He's your boy. Um, but yeah, we're not, unlike the last time when we only talked about the episode, we're not going to just do that, because I, uh, I'm aware of what Will has or hasn't seen in Star Trek. If you are a, a new listener, um, first of all, go back and listen to all of our other episodes. They're great. Uh, but Will has been on a few times and he's not really a Trekkie. He's seen a handful of episodes that we more or less twisted his arm into. Um, and I'm aware enough of what they are now. I think it's a grand total of about five, maybe six episodes. Um, so <laughs> I was able to come up with a hit or miss section that Will should, in theory, be able to do, uh, which we'll come to. But before any of that, uh, let me just enter into the first section. This podcast, by the way, I should say, breaks down into sections, as you'll see as we go along. If you're a new listener, I'm not going to go over them because we're three series in, but you'll see as we go over. And the first section is what I like to call Hailing Frequencies Open. Hailing Frequencies Open, sir. This would normally be like a, a getting to know you and kind of stuff, but I know you haven't seen much of Star Trek, but based on what you've currently seen, oh, which God. I think is only through the original series and like one or two episodes of Enterprise, do you so far have a favorite character that you've liked the most? Uh, whatever the hell William Shatner plays, Captain Kirk, I believe. Captain Kirk. Okay. Yeah. Not a Very not basic. an unpopular opinion as such. Yeah, that's fair enough. And uh, yeah, so based on the episodes you've seen, are you interested in in carrying on into more of the franchise or? Yeah, not, not a priority for you. <laughs> yes, I just know you're going to be on my leg and you're going to invite me on to this podcast what? until I actually get into it full time. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm going to be peer pressured one way or another into it. 
Maybe it's just going to go the long way around and invite you onto every single episode. So you absolutely. That's why. <laughs> that's why this is my third recording, right, with you guys on this podcast, and it's already the second the original series. He's trying to make me work from the start all the way through. <laughs> it's strategic. I see you, Mike. Yeah, I mean, there's not really a lot I can get into with you, Will, because I know you've only seen what the cage, the city on the edge uh, of yeah. forever from the original. I, I want to change my favorite character, by the way. Okay, two. I don't. I can't pronounce the name, but whoever Nichelle Nichols play, uh, I I really hope I didn't butcher that. But yeah, no, she's fine. my favorite character, even though her role in this episode is limited to one line, and that line is "I'm frightened." But you know, she has a second line. She does a lot I, with I, a little I, in this episode, but we'll get I, to I, it. There. I'm I'm yeah. developing a bit of a crush. That's why. She's great. To be fair, yeah, no, wrong with nobody that, would dude. blame you. <laughs> yeah, nobody had blame. She's great. It's a shame she doesn't get as much to do in the original series, but she gets quite a bit in the movies. And uh, yeah, uh, nice. meaning Michelle Nichols. Obviously, Zoe Saldana gets quite a bit to do because it's bloody Zoe Saldana <laughs> when they do the reboot movies. Anyway, um, yeah, that was the, the next question that I was going to ask you. Was just, are you interested as a movie fan in seeing the Trek movies, or are you not expecting anything great from them? I know you did a review of the Rafa Khan, and that was very mm. positive. So I think I'm just gonna have to jump into that, even though I don't think you like considered me uh, a viewer that would enjoy it because it's not really accessible. But oh, no, even I, so, I, I'll definitely. I disagree. I think it's. I think it's very accessible. I would say don't. Pretty much everybody that's not a sort of died in the world trekkie would say and tends to do it this way that they skip over the motion picture and go straight to Rafa Khan because motion picture really is you know very yeah. hardcore fans only kind of thing you know yeah. um and i think i yeah. saw rafa khan before i actually saw space seed so i think it is still i was accessible. just gonna say yeah i was thinking yeah, about be that fair, because I, yeah i, I did sorry. put on the first film and then about 20 minutes and i was like i'm not enjoying this and i switched off so that's how you need to know that's that's understandable that first film is not a good it's place a, to start. Yeah, yeah it is a common viewpoint Mm. Yes, exactly. Okay, no, cool. I was thinking the same thing because I don't know if I mentioned to you, Will, that um, our friend Connor from the Pasty Sheep uh, podcast mm. or the Nerd Bible podcast, yeah. uh, he went to see Wrath of Khan while it was on at the cinema and came out and he was properly enthused and excited. And I like, saw, oh, I saw his Instagram story. Yeah, he was all yeah, over it. He was all over it. But I was like, he asked if he could go and see it without anything. And I mentioned that technically it's a sequel to an episode of the original series, Space Seed. Mm. But I don't know that you need to know that episode because, like, everything you need is filled in within the first ten minutes of of Wrath of yeah. Khan in mm. enough of a way that you would understand it. So I mean, yeah. I would Give rather watch the episode that it kind of goes after. I would say if you if you have the chance to definitely watch Spacey, then jump into Wrath of Khan because it will probably help. But no, it's yeah. okay. Um, but yeah, anyway, maybe maybe next time or yeah. next time we're talking. But awesome. So uh, I'll uh, I'll close down the healing frequency banner then. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, the next section would normally be always the hit or miss section. Uh, we didn't do it last time, but this time I'm all set and ready with things that you know. So supposedly, that was... <laughs> well, supposedly we're we're going to see if you need your memory jogging. But yeah, so without <laughs> any further ado, this is the hit or miss section. What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. Well, I have five things here. I know we're only doing a single episode and we tend to do more, but like I said, I'm limited in what I could actually pick for you <laughs> based on what you've seen. Uh, and even still, one of them, I reckon, as soon as I mention it, you're going to be a little bit, oh, I don't know. Uh, but we'll try. We'll do our best. Um, yeah. Let me see if I can find them. There we go. 
so the five things based on just the episodes you've seen, which again for the audience is the original series, The Cage, up to Charlie X, and then now The City on the Edge of Forever, and the Enterprise episode, Future Tense. You've also seen Broken Bow, but you forgot it. Supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, with that in mind, uh, let me go to our first thing. Hit or miss the temporal cold war from Star Trek Enterprise. How how good are you with this so far? Like you watched Future Tense, you definitely remember that. So yeah. you know the basics that you know there's two factions, one from the 32nd century, one from roughly you know a few hundred years beforehand. There's the Sulaban working for that one side, the other side worked with Archer and everything. And it's all involving time travel and stuff. So based on what you've seen just in that one episode, you again you've actually seen Broken Bow, but you forgot it. Uh, so based on what you've Kind of one and a half episodes worth seeing. What would you make of the Temporal Cold War arc? Are you intrigued? Do you just not care? <laughs> it's absolute cinema, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's not much more I can say. I, I, I mean, as we got into in the previous recording that we did, which was like two episodes ago, I believe. So if you guys are interested in that episodes, do head back on the very channel and watch yeah. that back. Um, but yeah, it, it was very intriguing, and I was like. I'm definitely going to have to watch the rest of the series to understand it. And then DK kind of said, eh, it kind of goes somewhere eventually, but it is it's what it is. But yeah, in that respect, the way you asked me, you said, did it make you intrigued? And the answer was yes. So I can only say a hit, even though I have very, very limited knowledge, because even though it is mentioned and brought up in Future Tense, it barely is. And it doesn't really go anything yeah. beyond just a name reference, really. So forgive well, me if it's yeah. utter shit across the whole series star trek fans if it's crap, oh, no, no, no. forgive me for giving it a hit i don't think it's executed as well as it could have been i'll say that i'm not going to spoil anything for you in either yeah. direction before or after that one episode like i said you did watch broken bow and if you had been paying attention you would know that that's kind of centered around the whole temporal cold walkers is that the thing. episodes that you cast through to me yeah looking your webcam to be fair it wasn't the best quality, so you can no, forget, no, no. forget yeah. it very quickly. Definitely understand that, but like the plot of that was basically that they were they were chasing down a Klingon, the Sulabans, to try to destabilize the Klingon Empire or something. I recognize then, that name. Yeah, well, the Sulaban are the green icky uh, guys. Yeah, the ones that you liked in Future Tense. You like, you like them yeah, in yeah, Broken yeah. Bow as well because you did specifically message me and were like, "That was actually good and creepy." Because there's a scene where they knock all power out on the Enterprise and it's pitch black. And they basically just start crawling on the ceiling and stuff and kidnap the Klingon guy back. I think I remember like, that, actually, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I think you'd be intrigued enough because the Sulaban are a huge one of the like players in the Temporal Cold War. And I felt bad because, as, as you kind of brought up during Future Tense, there's that one scene when Archer goes into Daniel's quarters to retrieve the database. And I was like, Will's not going to have a bloody clue what's <laughs> going on here. <laughs> and sure enough, you were like, yeah, I just figured I wouldn't know this yet. Like, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get you caught up eventually. So, but now I'm glad to see you would say uh, that you liked it so far. So, did it, you it was an integral to the plot. So, yeah, yeah I didn't really mind. It doesn't really matter to be fair. It's just basically there was a guy from the future. He's not there anymore. He left behind a database. That's that's literally sure. it. So, fair enough. Uh, so, yeah, DK. Without too many spoilers, if we can, <clears throat> what's your opinion on the temporal cold war arc? Yeah, I'm I'm not going to go into it because I do want Will to explore this. I am trying to. You know, encouraging to watch more. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that makes the two of you. Yeah, I uh, I enjoyed it. Certain aspects obviously could have been done better than what they were, and with the way things went with the Enterprise in general, uh, 
yeah, it could have been expanded upon a little more and brought to a more satisfying conclusion for me personally. That's not to say that Will won't find it, you know, entertaining when he watches it. Mm. He will watch it, obviously. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> In about so, uh, 17 years. And I've had 10 episodes I, of this yet. <laughs> I and, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it, I think it's pretty much a hit. I do like what they did with it. I mean, I know it's going into non-canonical stuff, but I also like what they did with it in uh, Star Trek Online as well. There's a, a nice little campaign. Yeah. I haven't so, played it, yeah. but I do know what the plot basically involves, and I do think Online made better use of it than Enterprise did. Um, I, I will say that because I don't think that's giving too much away. But I liked the arc in Enterprise. I think oh, yeah, it's quite apparent yeah, I just think that there could have been aspects of it that could have been polished up a little more. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm watching, because I've recently, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but recently I've just got my hands on Enterprise Season 1 on Blu-ray, uh, which I hadn't owned before, so I'm working my way through it. And obviously there's a special features on there where they talk about a lot of the stuff that started in Season 1. Uh, and there's interviews with Brandon Braga where he says, and I think I agree with him, that it's obvious that the temporal Cold War is because the network has cold feet about a prequel, and they were like, well, we need a futuristic element in there somewhere. So they kind of were forced into doing it. Um, but yeah, to be Braga fair, says though, he, the studio heads didn't have the best ideas a lot of the time. That's, like, that's true, but band. I also think, well, yeah, <laughs> trying to have a room where there was like a band of the week playing or whatever. So it was like Smallville or Buffy or something. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But no, I, like, I, I kind of see where he's coming from. But like Braga says in the interviews, he thinks they did a good job with it, considering it wasn't necessarily their plan. But I think he says at one point it would have been better as its own show. And I kind of agree, because um, often when it sort of interjects with Enterprise, it gets a bit too intrusive at times, um, especially during the Zindi arc in season three, when that's its own thing. And then at the end, there's like a temporal Cold War episode or something. And it's like, all right, that's no, it's too much now. You know. Um, so, I don't understand yeah, anyway. the, the, the hate that some people have for it. I mean, it's one of those things to me that even if you don't like it much, you can either take it or leave it. But to go full hell-bent hater mode on it, I think it's a bit much. I, I get it. I think I'm less on board with it than you, and I'm certainly... I hate the way it ended, because it's quite apparent that they just changed executive producers, and the guy who came in, Manny Cotto, was like, I don't like this, so we're just going to do one episode that ends it, and that's it. You're not getting it. And It's so much obvious that he's like, oh, right, here's your one episode. We're done. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Guess that's the end of that arc, then. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> I would still personally, though, say that it's a soft hit for me, because I just like time travel in general, and the ideas and a lot of them are really good. And I think, uh, again, not spoiling what happens, but I think the episode Shockwave uh, that basically bookends seasons one and two um, is really good and does really good things with it. So, yeah. Uh, right. Well, that's three hits. I, I think I'm less on board, like I said, than you guys, but I still would definitely call it a hit. And I just wish, like I said, I'm, I'm glad that online picked up the baton and did something with it because I wish they'd had more meat to the story and it was quite obvious there was more they could do and just didn't. So, Anyway, yeah. um, right, so moving on to number two on our list of five, then. This should be easier to answer one way or the other. Uh -huh, uh, so Will, Will, DK, hit or miss, the Enterprise NX-01. Will, we'll start Ooh. with you. <laughs> it's just a ship to me. I'm sorry. I know you <laughs> did know about all the different types of ships. Tell me Get out! Ship. Just to me. What's the difference between these ships? It's a hit. 
it's a hit. Okay. Well, well, ship guys, some people say. are ship guys and some people aren't ship guys, but like I was just thinking. I've seen maybe about would... five or six episodes. Forgive me. So, uh, DK, what about you? What do you make of the NX01 and I guess the NX class by default? I suppose. I I love this design. It's it gives okay. it's you know it. It's enough of a change from the uh, the one seven zero one, but it still keeps those kind of those lines with the nacelles and everything. Mm. But you know, bearing in mind that it is a prequel, it still very much harkens back to uh, to the NASA days, and I and I just mm. love it. I love the design. And I, I know again, it's something that came in from a, for a lot of hate from some quarters, but yeah, I've, yeah. I've never faltered on that. I love this ship. Yeah, I think it's, it's my second favorite after the refit, to be honest. Wow. Mine too. Okay. That's mine too. <laughs> <laughs> You've only seen two in fairness, Will, but, you know. <laughs> Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of reluctant about it when it first got announced and when the images came out because, again, this is only something for the hardcore Trek fans, but I was one of the people that was unhappy that it's so similar to the Akira class. I was like, okay, I see what you've done there, but it doesn't really make sense. But then when you actually see it sort of in action during the episodes and stuff, you realize that they have primitivized it if that's a word um so i actually appreciated that it looked because obviously they don't have shields and stuff it looked way more metallic and grimy yeah. i guess and more like as you said kind of like it could be a development of space shuttles and stuff from nowadays so it wasn't all beautiful clean lines and yeah i liked the kind of how rough and rugged it looks and for whatever reason during season three when it gets beaten to a pulp and it's just you know smoking wreck with big holes in it i think it looks amazing when it's suffered yeah. damage and i don't even know why but it's like there's, yeah, a, that looks there's cool. only two model kits i've ever bought from the star trek universe the uh the refit and this one i've not mm. i've not built either of them because i never have the time but i do have it ready yeah yeah, so I think it works. And now, as I said, having watched it in the show, I think it's a massive hit. I think it, it's one of those that you have to see in action, though. I don't think a picture necessarily gives you that much information about it. Um, but yeah, I say massive hit. And uh, DK, I'm assuming you would agree? Definitely. This is number three out of five, if you're both ready. Uh, I'm going yep. to share it now. And it is the M113 creature, otherwise known as the Salt Vampire from the Man Trap. Will, is it a hit or is it a miss? What the hell is that? It's Do you man. not recall the episode? It disguised itself as Dr. McCoy's uh, old flame the as a woman. Um, <laughs> you'd have watched it. It was the first official episode after The Cage. So I know you watched it because you mentioned it, um, that you'd watched and enjoyed, but you didn't love it, um, mm. I think, as I recall. But like I said, you can see on screen the actual makeup or costume, whatever you want to call it, effect of, of the thing. That's not digital or anything. It's just a costume, so... What are your thoughts? Mm. It's reminded me of a Doctor Who villain that I can't quite place, but there's yeah. a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it looks weird. It, it looks weird. I, I again, I don't really have any strong opinions because I can't actually remember the man trap. I so, don't know if you recall, but it basically yeah. it was it's like a vampire, but it sucks out people's salt. So if, I don't know if you recall, but it had hands that had basically like octopus type suckers all over, and it would touch both sides of your face. And drain all the salt out of you, and then you'd end up with these like red blotches on your face and be dead because you'd have Does no salt. Does it kind of shake? Does it uh, kind of shake? Not that I recall. <laughs> okay, um, then I'm completely misremembering. Uh, on, on that note, I give it a miss. Okay, fair enough. Variety, variety. That's fine. Uh, DK, what do you think of the uh, the creature? I have no strong opinions one way or the other. I don't hate wow. it. I don't love it. I, I For what it is and what it helps set up, I'm going to consider it a hit. 
but it's not my favourite creature design. I'll be honest. Okay, my, I, that I, gives you the cast of vote. I one. would definitely see. I, I'm weirdly, I thought my opinion would have been more popular, but maybe I'm an outlier. And I love it. I think it's one of the guy called uh, Wa Chang, um, who did the monster suits and stuff for the original series. I think it's one of, if not the best one that he made. Like it looks the most realistic. It's not like the, you know, we're gonna grab a, a gorilla suit and stick a horn on it that you get with the Mugato. And it's not the, you know, we're just going to make a fake rock of the Horta or whatever. Um, so I think it's one of the most effective, especially, like I said, for 1965, 66 at this point. Uh, and yeah, I've just always found it creepy. And like, obviously, it's cool that it can do the shape shifting thing or whatever it's doing, the illusion thing, so that it can appear like your perfect woman or whatever to lure you in like a siren. But like I said, when you did finally see what it actually looked like, I thought it was really cool. Um, even though logically, I guess it doesn't make sense for it to have a, such an obviously pronounced mouth that it never uses since it sucks things through its hands, but we'll forgive it. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm going to see a massive hit, and that would, I think, just tip it over the edge because that's a miss, a soft hit, and a, a large hit. So I'll uh, I'll get rid of that and move us on. So this is number four out of five coming up then. Uh, I don't know <laughs> quite what response this is going to get now based on what we've already said, but the fourth thing for today is the constitution class and will that's basically the original enterprise i'm talking oh, about God's sake, <laughs> he loves his spaceships man <laughs> what do you want me to say there's hundreds it's of them in the blooming show it's gotta be more to star trek than ships yeah but it's a cool thing i mean the same way that you have i don't know i guess formula one fans could tell you the difference in cars and stuff you know? this is oh, like designs of cybermen yeah fair exactly. enough Doctor Who, the equivalent of this is sonic screwdrivers. Like, yes. No, it's, it's more like CK said. It's like the redesigns of Cybermen or Daleks or whatever. And uh, I mean, you, you can clearly yeah. see this is not the same as the last one, actually, you know? <laughs> I mean, I actually prefer this one, to be fair. So, yeah. Right. Okay, Trunk that's it. good. That's a good start. Um, <laughs> obviously, you know, this takes place after then, so this should theoretically be bigger and I guess, like I said, smoother and a bit more like a heavy cruiser compared to the almost space shuttle nature, I guess, of NX-01. Mm. Um, but just in general, looking at the image, Will, do you think good, I've given bad? it a hit. hit. Okay. I'm just going to move swiftly away from you. And DK, what, did, <laughs> what do you make of the... Uh... Actually, I, don't, I don't have the patience tonight. <laughs> DK, what do you think of the Constitution? It's, it's not the refit, but I will always love this. It's, it's a definite... Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, I I mean, I could have said Constitution Class in general, but considering there's like 17 configurations at this point, I was going to like limit it to the original. Mike just whips out his notebook with 20 pages on why the ship is grey and it's the best thing ever. <laughs> it's iconic. Or well, so I thought, anyway. I, I <laughs> you, know know, I mean? you know, I know people, you know, have a tendency to prefer the Voyager or Discovery. But really? This to me, yeah, but this to me is home. I love no, this, this is iconic. This is the ship. It's in the National Air and Space Museum for crying out loud. I know, but you know, there's some people out there with not much taste. Let's be honest. Clearly, and I'm saying that as a, and I'm saying that as a Buckaroo Banzai fan. <laughs> Indeed. Well, um, yeah. Well, as you see, I think the refit's better because it was using more advanced special effects stuff and things to make it. Look. But I love the original design. It's just, it's cool. I like it. Anyway. I, I don't want to get too far into it because I feel like Will's just going to be like, what are you on about, you nerd? But yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love saucer engineering section, Nacelle's idea. 
Uh, I think that was genius. I like that it looks just cool and it's it's a recognizable silhouette and everything. So I'm going to say hit. The fifth and final thing is based on something you must remember because you've just seen it. Uh, so it's kind of getting into the review a tad, but I wanted to chuck it in here. Uh, and so hit or miss the Guardian of Forever. Uh, Will, should I dare risk going to you first? I mean, you wouldn't believe I gave three out of four hits so far. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, to be fair, this is probably the most intriguing part of the episode that we are reviewing today. Mm. And I thought it was very impressive, especially with the smoke. And you said as well that it was archival footage, which is obviously mm. archival footage, of course. But um, it's from movies, you said. And I yeah, thought it was pretty good. Like a lot of this thing, and we're going to get into it when we get to the episode, it's a lot more style over substance in terms of the style is very impressive. But um, aspects of what it was kind of confused me. For example, one main example is um, all we got really is those archival footage, right? And then yeah. they were talking about completely different things. For example, the crew are saying, oh, if we step in at the right time, we'll be on the right day. And I was like, not really, because we literally see Nancy Germany, and then we jump to the Cold War, something bollocks like that. Yeah, so I'm, that I'm, is true. It, it really confused me in that respect because they were explaining something different than what we were seeing. But in yeah, terms what of you actual saw, practical effects was good, and I'd give it a hit for that reason. But it's more of a rating, and you know, at the time, technical issue more than uh, actual mm. um, problems with the thing itself. I can I genuinely actually understand what you're saying in terms of like. It was really cool that they were showing either mostly Paramount movie stock footage and then a few things, I think, from newsreels and stuff. But even they point out, like, well, the centuries are racing past at such a level, but I can narrow it down to within, like, a month or a week or something. And I was like, how? <laughs> it seems yeah. to be like... <laughs> but, okay, you have a tricorder, I'm guessing, that can pinpoint to within a fraction of a second of the image that's shown or whatever. So I'll hand wave it away. But, yeah, they could have perhaps done better. But I was just intrigued what you thought of, because, like, the actual design of it, I don't know if you know this, but it's basically by accident because they had the original script had these like massive, like 10 feet tall guardian creatures that guarded a big portal and stuff. And they just simply couldn't afford it. And I think it was one of the set designers just came up with this like donut kite ring idea that lights up and was like, this will do. <laughs> and and yet, you know, it, it, it for me, it works. I just I wasn't sure. If I mean, I definitely get that same. impression because I thought the planet itself was pretty spectacular, in fact. So, OK. Um, the actual spectacle of the planet kind of makes up for it and makes the the thing, whatever the hell it's called, the portal, we'll call it, yeah. actually look well, lesser than that. And the portal didn't look that impressive compared to everything else. It just looked like an oddly shaped rock until it lit up and then started smoking. I was like, oh, okay. And talking. Rock, exactly. <laughs> and talking, yeah. exactly, yeah. I think it's credit to Bart, uh, Bart LaRue, who does the voice as well, is absolutely fantastic because you have to have somebody with that kind of like, I am here forever, whatever and stuff. So uh, he did a mm. good job, I think, as well. Um, I was going to mention the effects, but I may as well get into it now. I'm kind of weird. Uh, it's kind of odd that you say you were impressed by the city that they find themselves in because it's... I, I think it's really bad. The, planets, the, version. the planet, the planet, the planet. The planet, sorry. The planet um, good, not to say. What do you mean from like space? Yes. The one oh, okay, they teleported on and then found the actual object itself. Like, but, but what I was going to say um, is that like, because I, I made a point this time of watching it with original effects because you're watching on Netflix, so you can't watch the extended, a new uh, enhanced effects version or whatever. Um, and Kirk has that line about like, these city ruins go on for miles. And... No, they don't, mate. They go on, like, as far as you could afford on a set. It's quite obvious. But 
I do uh, make note that when I was looking into like the making of this episode, when they came to remaster the original series, that was one of the things they specifically made note of is like, look, it's part of the dialogue that Kirk says it goes for miles and clearly it doesn't. So that was like the first thing they changed. And there's a really cool new digitally input scene where there is like miles and miles of ruined city and stuff in the enhanced version. So for me, it's like they that improves it a lot. Um, but I just feel like this version does look a lot like we've got a 60s soundstage. Let's make it look as much like a ruined city as we can. Um, but, you know, it still works. I think it's fine. And I love, for whatever reason, I love the Guardian of Forever design, even though I can't put my finger on it because it's just a ring. <laughs> well, TK, what do you make of the uh, the Guardian of Forever? I love the concept. Uh, yeah, it's cool. I'm, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't know why. I'm really sold on it. I, weirdly enough, I prefer it in its... I mean, I'm flashing ahead to a further episode here, but mm -hmm. I prefer it in its static form than yep. as much as I squeed in Terra Forever in Discovery. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I wasn't keen on the fact that, oh, the Guardian of Forever can, you know, pick up a suitcase now and go traveling. But I love the fact, I, I love the planet as, as Will were on about, and I just love the concept of this. I love that they don't try and give it an explanation. They don't yeah. try and, you know, tie it up in a bow. They do, I mean, again, going into non-canonical stuff, they do use it again in the books, but unlike, ah. you know, Disco, they don't. They still do not go into its origins, or well, as far as I know, well, anyway. Neither, the books I've read. Neither does um, Discovery, to be fair. <laughs> no, but you know, they are extrapolating from it, kind of thing. And I just love the fact that you know this civilization died out tens and thousands of years ago, and there's this thing there. And yeah, I just, I just love the, uh, I love the idea. Awesome. Though so it is kind of well known for something that was should really have been a one-off. But I also love the fact, I had it in my notes actually, that I love the fact that it um, deliberately is kind of ambiguous and doesn't explain much beyond, well, are you a machine or alive? Well, I'm both and I'm neither. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, and then it, as, as it tries to explain, it's like, look, I've explained it. Why must everything be a riddle? I've explained it as well as your primitive science will allow. I'm like, mm -hmm. yep, that'll do. <laughs> That's all I need to hear. So, <laughs> so yeah, I kind of loved all that. And like I said, I love the voice, love the concept of just a random time portal that exists somewhere so it's a massive hit for me as well so uh did i ask you guys i'm, I'm presuming i did and you both said the same yeah i'm losing track of my mind so yeah uh that's three you've read it in which case i really am obviously well, today welcome to my um, world <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to be there anyway um, dk is yeah, the final form he's the final boss he'll become him eventually <laughs> but you just won't remember fighting me <laughs> exactly so we're going to move on now to the episode proper uh, and now we will begin analysis there we go yes. um, awesome so uh, as we have started to do here now and as we tend to do more on the um silver screen podcast our sister podcast channel uh, we, I have basically done a sort of behind-the-scenes type section. For the sake of the audience, to make it a little bit more uh, exciting, as we're talking about the behind-the-scenes thing, you can enjoy a little bit of music in the background. There we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, this, this is very... Hey, awesome. baby. How you doing? It's called Into Space, but I feel like it should be called Come to Bed. You know? <laughs> it is. You need Barry White doing this. Uh... <laughs> Exactly. You're looking anyway, yeah, take it away, TK. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. 
As much as uh, everyone considers it a classic, Harlan Ellison was less than impressed with how his uh, script was treated. He gave uh, an interview. It was quoted in the uh, oral histories included in the 2016 book by Mark A. Altman, which was the 50-year mission, the complete uncensored, unauthorised history of Star Trek, the first 25 years. And if you've not read that and you're a Trek fan, I really recommend it. It's a fantastic book. Hel- Ellison says, The idea of city came from the image of the city on the edge of forever, and it was an image of two cities, which is what it says in the script. The city on the edge of forever is the city on this planet. It was not a big donut in my script. It was a city. (laughs) That was a city that was on the edge of time, and it was where all the winds of time met. That was my original idea. All the winds of time coalesce, and when you go through to the other side, here is this other city, which is also on the edge of forever, which is New York during the Depression. They're the mirror image of each other in that time. All I was concerned about was telling a love story. I made the point that there are some loves that are so great that you would sacrifice your ship, your crew, your friends, your mother, all of time and everything in defense of this great love. That's what the story was all about. All of the additional stuff that Gene Roddenberry kept trying to get me to put in kept taking away from that. The script does not end the way the episode does. Kurt goes for her to save her. At the final moment, by his actions, he pretty much says, I don't care what happens to the ship, the future and everything else. I can't let her die. I love her. And he starts for her. Spock, who is cold and logical, grabs him and holds him back and she's hit by the truck. The TV ending, where he closes his eyes and lets her get hit by the truck, is absolute bull. That's the best part of the episode, sorry. (laughs) It destroyed the drama and it destroyed the extra human tragedy of it. That's uh, that's Ellison's own words. I mean, but we but we do have to, you know, clarify that Ellison is known as a bit of a curmudgeon. I will also say as well that I have read Ellison's original script. I have the comic book adaptation of it, and what was on TV is a hundred times better. Um, obviously, he's not going to admit that since he's the guy that wrote the other version. But I'm sorry, Harlan, if well, you're listening, wherever you may be. He's also no longer with us, so that that. That's what I mean. Yeah. So yeah, I did have a little. I, I didn't have that exact thing, but I kind of touched on some of that in my thing. Um, so yeah, was that it? That was all you'd, uh, you'd had to. Share yeah, that's all I had. Awesome, awesome. Um, I didn't put it together uh, about the kind of the, the city on the edge of forever. I never understood the title until doing research on it this time. Uh, and as I found, it says that the title of the episode, obviously, as you said, refers to both the dead city on the time planet and New York City itself where the timeline will be either restored or disrupted. Um, In Ellison's original script, Kirk, upon first seeing the city, sparkling like a jewel on a high mountaintop, reverently says it looks like a city on the edge of forever. Uh, But in Ellison's first treatment for the episode, the city they travelled back in time to was Chicago. So, there we go. (laughs) Uh, When asked in a February 1992 interview whether the makers of this episode consciously intended it to have the contemporaneous anti-Vietnam War movement as subtext, associate producer Robert Justman replied, of course we did. <clears throat> uh, Joan Collins credits her then four-year-old daughter Tara for her decision to appear in Star Trek. Having never heard of the show before, she told her children Tara and Alexander about the offer, and Tara enthusiastically encouraged her to appear. Uh, There is a scene in the original 1960s broadcast version that has been partially deleted in some editions. When McCoy meets Rodent holding the milk bottle, the scene ends with McCoy collapsing, then cuts to McCoy meeting Keela in the mission. As originally filmed, after McCoy collapses, Rodent picks McCoy's pocket and takes his hand, Fraser, which he'd 
Fraser, which McCoy took from the transporter chief, accidentally sets it to kill and vaporizes himself. This scene is present that's in its original that's the form. I've got, yeah. Yeah. In, uh, it says it's present in its original form in DVD and Blu ray versions. Will, was that present on Netflix? Which show? Uh, there's a scene, we're not sure if it's included or not, where basically when McCoy first arrives in the past, he encounters like a bum, basically, like a, a you know, homeless guy or whatever. Uh, yes, and the guy. The guy basically, yeah, he always meets him and he drops the milk bottle. But in most versions, apart from the DVD and Blu-ray, it cuts away straight after that. Whereas in the extended dish version, he steals McCoy's phaser and accidentally vaporizes himself. And I wasn't sure if you saw, you'd seen that scene or if it was. Oh, gonna... I do. I don't believe so now. Right. Okay. That's we. It's on the Blu-ray version that I watched, and I'm assuming DK it's on your version too, even yeah. though it's very weird. Um, anyway, uh, as I was saying to Will earlier, the footage seen through the time portal is for the most part lifted from old Paramount Pictures and RKO Pictures films. It should be noted that Desilu had not yet been acquired by Paramount's holding company Gulf and Western at this time, and that the use of these clips in the episode essentially constituted a copyright infringement in current understanding. Alright. <laughs> uh, Again, sorry if I repeat anything that you've gone over, but yeah, I, I did touch on the whole sort of being rewritten and stuff, and uh, I just have the information that this episode is credited to famous sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison. However, his drafts were heavily rewritten by members of the Star Trek writing staff, primarily DC Fontana. The original script didn't feature McCoy at all, but had an Enterprise crewman named Beckwith who was dealing drugs among the crew. Beckwith murdered a fellow crewman named Lebec, who was on the verge of turning him in, escaped to the planet the ship was orbiting. There he went through the time vortex operated by a mysterious ancient race called the Guardians and changed history. As a result, the Enterprise was gone and a savage pirate ship called the Condor was in its place, full of renegade humans. Kirk and Spock follow Beckwith through the time portal to 1930 Chicago, where Kirk falls in love with young social worker Edith Kessler. Ellison's script was deemed unusable for the series for many different reasons. Gene Roddenby objected to the idea that drug usage would still be a problem in the 23rd century, and even present among Starship crews. Also, the production staff was heavily against Kirk's final inactivity, claiming that if Kirk was unable to decide and act, viewers would never be able to accept him as a strong leader in later episodes. Certain elements of the, strips of the script, such as the Guardians and the Condor and its crew, were simply impossible to create on the series' budget. Uh, Gene Kuhn is mainly responsible for the small comical elements of the story, including the infamous rice picker scene, which Ellison reportedly hated. Hey, look, we're in agreement on something. <laughs> Ellison was so dismayed with the changes Roddenberry and Fontana made that he wished his credit to read, written by Cordway and a bird, a request that Roddenberry denied, though Ellison did have the final right to have his pseudonym attacked, attached. Sorry, He claims that Roddenberry made veiled threats that if he did so, he'd be blackballed in the TV and motion picture industry. Despite this feud, Roddenberry listed this as one of his top 10 favourite episodes in an issue of TV Guide celebrating the 25th anniversary of Star Trek. In his own defence, Ellison stated he had no real problem with DC Fontana rewriting him, but rather with the extent and number of unpaid rewrites the studio and network got out of him. To say nothing of the exaggeration-prone Gene Roddenberry telling fans that Ellison's script showed Scotty selling drugs. The script actually didn't feature Scotty at all either. Um, Roddenberry apparently denied Ellison's pseudonym request, 
because he knew that everyone in the sci-fi community was aware that Cordway and a bird as a credit was Ellison's way of signalling his dissatisfaction with the way production people treated what he wrote. It would have meant that Star Trek was no different than all the other science fiction shows in mistreating quality writers and could have resulted in prose science fiction writers avoiding contributing to the programme. And as I said, Ellison's original teleplay was adapted by IDW Publishing for a five-issue comic book series titled Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Heaven. So there we go uh after that huge info dump any thoughts chaps is anything uh intriguing Jesus to you there anything... christ <laughs> yeah it's a, a lot of information to take in as i said you will know from between what me and dk said that ellison himself is very unsure about whether he likes dislikes the changes what he did or didn't write frankly i think he's just prone to talking a little bit of crap <laughs> but um but yeah for whatever reason, he's still credited on the episode and it's often given to him, so there we go. Uh, <clears throat> so, Will, any thoughts based on that random info? I am very excited to get into the episode review. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. I can't wait to see nah, if you nah, disagree with Nah, to yeah. be fair, there were a couple of points where I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting, but I don't really have any elaboration on, so yeah. Yeah, that's fair it, enough. To be fair, I did learn a bit from that, so I appreciate that. I didn't want to mention it earlier, but that was kind of because one of the things you mentioned was it's not entirely clear when McCoy changes history, like how they know everything's totally different and the Enterprise is gone and stuff. And I was trying to point out to them without getting too far into it that like an idea had been scripted to show a different version of the Enterprise with a different name and they were all like dark renegade humans and stuff, but they just couldn't afford to do it. So in the end, you just get the Guardian saying, oh, it's all changed. Your past and your beginning and end is all not there anymore. Yes, because they didn't show it or didn't do anything to actually earn it. It was just so dramatic for no reason. They're like, we must go through this portal. We have no other choice. I was like, well, establish these things before me. <laughs> We're all alone. There's nothing else here. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no. I mean, they did go back and, and touch upon the uh, alternative ship, didn't they, really, in season two with Mirror Mirror. So I'm wondering Mirror, if that course, was yeah. extrapolated from this original script. Yeah, it does make you think. I mean, they've done that a lot because even technically, like, Picard season two is basically that concept. I have one big criticism, which I may as well bring up now that I've already hinted at, which is, could they not think of a better line? I know they give the comedy music and it's supposed to be hilarious, but the whole, my friend is Chinese. He had an unfortunate accident with a mechanical rice picker. I was like, oh, oh when that was said, I was line. like, oh, they're going down the racist route. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I hate that so much. Like, that would have got to have been something better you when could do than Chinese, that. When they said Chinese, I was just like, uh, that picked my interest, like, uh, what are you doing here? Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I don't love, that's that's a line that I would happily cut from any future yeah. uh, airings of the episode. DK, what about you? Did you have an issue with anything in the script in particular? That's that's pretty much it. I, yeah. uh, I wasn't a big fan of that, and it's really not aged well. Yeah, it hasn't. It's aged like milk. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so the next section then, because I basically, I should say for, again, the new listeners, we break it down into sections. It's not going to be chronological. We just get talking about things, and if the conversation leads us like you just saw to discussing things within the episode, then we'll talk about that. Uh, but I have my notes broken down into sections because it's just easier. Uh, and the first section is the writing uh, or the plot. Um, so first of all, I kind of made notes about, like, I'm intrigued what both of you guys think about the fact that it starts, first of all, it's straight into the action, and it mentions that we've the Enterprise has been tracking, uh, what is it, ripples in time or waves of time energy or something uh, that have led them to this planet. 
Um, but we don't see them discovering this or anything. We just see them in the midst of getting attacked by these <laughs> energy waves. And then, as I said, if you if you were listening uh, to the original script idea, obviously the Enterprise crewman dealing drugs thing has been changed to McCoy accidentally injects himself <laughs> with a drug that makes him, I, I guess, high or <laughs> something, or certainly insane, <laughs> let's say. Um, mm. And then beams himself down to the planet and jumps through the time portal. Um, so just generally, what are your overall thoughts on that kind of as a starting point for the story? I, I mean, when, it. He, when he injected himself, I was like, what the hell's going on here? Because <laughs> yeah. he like spins you... with it, a little pivot dance with it, and then he falls on to it. And I think, oh, Onto okay. the yeah. <laughs> did you uh, did you hear the uh, the captain's log when Kirk just overdramatically goes, Captain's log, a few drops of cord resin is enough to save a man's life. Almost ten times that has been injected into Dr. McCoy. We don't know what he will do and stuff. And I was like, all right, we got the picture, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I will say is that we crit well, I criticize an aspect of the um of the past episode we did was it called Future Tense? Future Tense, yeah. And I said all the scenes on the kind of the bridge were so overdramatic. And even though you said, oh, that bit was a bit dramatic, I was like, generally, they were really well stitched together scenes. And I loved the practical effects of, you know, the sparks and, you know, the shakes. And you really got into, you know, um, you, you said they didn't really show them being affected by all the waves. And I thought, no, oh, they no, definitely I, were because they were all over the I, place. I think it showed them being affected, but I was just kind of... Not that it's a bad thing, because I'm very much like, I, if you're going to get into the action, get into it, don't waste time. As you well know from some of your criticisms of other shows, don't waste time on needless exposition. So I was just mm, thinking, like, a worse a worse written episode would have been, like, we're just Practice. floating through space. Oh, now we've picked up, um, you know, energy distortions. <laughs> Where are they coming from? Let's go to them. But instead, it picks up with just they're getting rocked by these waves, and you just get a quick log explaining we encountered we detected some energy waves through time we came to examine them and we've ended up at the focal point which is this planet now that right i'm good when i messaged you i i because we were doing it at the same time and i messaged you this is good for the 60s and that was the scene and that was sequence that uh kind of made me say that because i was like you would never see this in doctor who at the time yeah, well, it's it's famous in Star Trek circles, the, the actors who uh, star in Star Trek, because that basically all they do is um, they tell the actors to act like the, sh the ship is shaking um, and tell them exactly the intensity of it. So the next gen actors in particular have made a, a, a meal in, in uh, conventions and stuff about saying that they'd just be on the bridge of the Enterprise and then like somebody off screen, the director or whatever would go, OK, something's coming up to you. It's going to hit you at force level seven and then they would all just have to like oh just on the spot there's not actually anything moving <laughs> and it's just like so you have to base it on like okay if it's a 10 then we should be thrown across the bridge and if it's a one we should just be like oh that was a bit much so <laughs> i was like wow it's great to know that's how technically it's done <laughs> but it works you know it worked for me too yeah good um yeah are you still with us dk i am i am yeah i'm just listening you were going to get into it, but then I cut you off. I do apologise. No, no, it's fine. Oh, I, I was just, I was just going to say, I, re I really like how it starts. It, as Mike says, it does get really into the action, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how Mike feels because you've watched it numerous times. I'm guessing. Uh, hmm. Although I remember all the bits, obviously from uh, the 1930s, and I remember yeah. the bits on the planet with the Guardian. It's always a surprise to me how it starts because I can never remember how it starts, really. Oh, I can remember. <laughs> I can remember just based on D. Kelly's performance, which I'm always like, 
it's not quite over the top, but it's it's almost there, if you know what I mean. So I always yeah. just, for whatever reason, like if you ask me to come up with great episode, great lines from the episode, sorry, I could name loads. But if you ask me to name the one that sticks in my mind the most after watching it, it's always murderers, assassins. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's so weird because, and that's something that I noticed this time. And it's a weird criticism, but it's just because I've seen it that many times that I'm like, what could they have done differently? And this time around, I was like, they've had to go to great pains because they want McCoy to go back in time and change history and whatever. So why not just start the episode with them having beamed down to investigate onto the planet and then have McCoy inject himself there instead of him having to, you know, do it on the bridge of the Enterprise, run, escape all the guards and everything, knock out the transporter chief and beam himself down? I was like, yeah. it just seems like an unnecessary extra step at this stage. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that could just be me being a bit too picky, I suppose. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, as they get to the planet, as I said, I've kind of touched on this, but I really love the Guardian of Forever. I love whoever it was that scripted the dialogue. I just think it's all really cool, epic sci-fi nerdiness, though. It's like a question since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. I was like, that's just cool, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, again, I love that it's vague and doesn't explain what it is other than just, well, you wouldn't understand. Stop speaking <laughs> to us in riddles. Yeah, exactly. And even Kirk saying to Spock, like, what, frustrated? Because you're not intelligent enough for this thing, you know? I love how he was, like, knocked down a few pegs as well because of <laughs> um, in the actual city sequences as well. I think um, he was being primitive. Actually, no. No, 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 no. That was the scene that I was you were on about forgive me cut this bit out i just recalled the moment that you were on about and it's the moment that i was thinking about being in the city but it's not it's the start so yeah forgive me yeah when the guardians like you wouldn't understand in your primitive science yeah yeah, i mean it is right what you say in that spock basically seems to get frustrated because even though it's not explicitly said kirk's just basically given him the old bad workman blames his tools because he's like, Spock, have you not made any progress? And he's like, I'm trying to work with stone knives and bear skins here. <laughs> There's also that bit later on where Kirk says to him, I, I, you know, if I didn't know you any better, I would, uh, I'd be convinced you're enjoying this. And he says, <laughs> just because you're a superior, it doesn't give you the right to insult me, Captain. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I see. I love the Guardian stuff. I really do think it works once they're down there that McCoy just basically leaps through because he's in this drug-induced craze or whatever. And I'm fine because it's such a well-worn trope by now that I kind of was fine with understanding, all right, he's gone back, he's changed something. That has now changed the reality you're in. The thing that isn't very well explained, um, because it really can't be, is that they really shouldn't be there either, but because they're at like, the centre of the you know, where the change happened or whatever, they're fine. And I did notice for the first time that the planet itself actually glows when time's been changed because it looks like a normal planet and then it just becomes like a a green glow, just envelops the whole thing. And I'm like, so that's like the focal point and that allows them to be protected from the timeline changes, which basically first contact achieves by, I don't know, you'll remember this, DK, when they're trying to, the Borg go back and basically assimilate Earth, but the Enterprise E it's still there and they just say, well, we shouldn't be here. Are we were protected from the being very close to the wake of the ship that changed time yeah. or something? And I was like, all right, whatever. You know, <laughs> you can't be just gone. So whatever. Hand away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Will, but you obviously had a bit of a, a struggle with that because I'm guessing that was what you were thinking was like, well, what's happened here? <laughs> I yeah. I to be fair, I do know is the lighting changed now, but was it intentional or was it just bad lighting? 
I'm not talking about lighting. I'm saying like when you see the planet from space, it looks like a, a barren, like just a, a regular planet. But then when McCoy has changed time, it cuts to outer space. There's no enterprise there. And the whole planet I is glowing it. green. It's like um, green energy all over it. And I was like, all right, that's cool. But well, I at least never noticed. <laughs> yeah. At least he did something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I will say as well, DK, that I always used to have an issue uh, with the fact that, again, sorry, Will, this isn't going to be nothing, but when the Guardian appears in Discovery, it, uh, <laughs> when the Guardian's in Discovery, it sends Jojo not just back in time, but over to the Mirror Universe, where she's from. And I'm like, hang on. But then, again, this time around, yeah. I noticed that the Guardian specifically says, I am... Other a, dimensions. Uh, yeah, I'm a gateway to... It's either the Guardian or Spock says, I'm a gateway to other times and dimensions. And I was like, fair enough. That shut me up then, to write us no yeah. more than that, clearly. Same here. <laughs> So yeah, <laughs> that's just a little note anyway. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. As I said the same thing as as Will. Like it's a shame they couldn't afford to show more of like the, how the timeline had changed and, and things like that. But it's only fifty minutes, so I guess I'll forgive them. <laughs> uh, right. uh, when they meet Edith, I do love that she's kind of like immediately kind to Kirk and Spock. Like they point out that they've stolen the clothes and everything, and she just doesn't really. It's not that she doesn't care, but she knows that it's like the depression and times are hard. So instead of being like a jerk about it and calling the police and stuff, she offers them a job. I mean, contextually, it makes sense, especially with her being a do-gooder. Well, I know she didn't yeah. want to be called a do-gooder, but then like she goes into the basement. You have two people that she assumes and like sees have broken into her basement. And then she's just like, ah, yeah, do you guys want a job? And I think, what is going on? If I saw two people in my basement, I wouldn't say, oh, do you want to stick around? Do you want to clean all my bits? <laughs> It's like, no, yeah. get out of my house, you robbing git. <laughs> but then it makes sense that she's a nice person and whatever, and she wants to do good oh, yeah. for the disadvantaged. I was just going to say, I love that there's a dialogue that even explains that, though, because like you could think this woman's either dumb or a doormat, but then when she gets to the speech, she's like, look, I'm not a do-gooder. If you can't you know, shake the booze or the drugs or whatever it is that's got you, then tough crap. You're here to work, and if you can work for me, I can offer you an honest living, but you've got to be willing to help yourself as well kind of thing. And I was yeah, like, all right, several, okay. There's several aspects here where you kind of have to indulge with what it's going with. You see it and then you think, okay, stick with it. And then eventually there will be payoff maybe about 20 minutes into the future. For <laughs> yeah. example, I was like, okay, so effectively we're having two different stories there. We've got the Doctor and we've also got Spock and mm. Kirk. And I was like, oh, they're not really interconnected here, which is a very easy thing to say. But then towards the end, you realize, you no, yeah. because Spock has been building this thing. And whilst um, Kirk has been endeavoring in a romantic relationship with this lady, uh, yeah. Spock is still going away and doing his thing. And then eventually, towards the end, Kirk falls in love with her. And then it's, there's a cut and it's a cut. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it cuts just as he's leaning in for a kiss. So it implies <laughs> that they did the dirty. And then the very oh, yes. next time yeah. we see Kirk, Kirk walks in and he's like, I love her. And then we get the whole revelation that she's going to die. Oh no, we get the revel uh, revelation that like she's going to die. She gets the revelation that she's going to die. And then we get the initiation of sex. And then... No, I think, I think you were right the first time. I think Spock sees that it happens and that she's the focal point, but they don't know at first. So Kirk says, like, Spock, you have to find out because they're not... They, they don't know whether it's that McCoy killed her in his, like, induced rage or McCoy saved her and they have to know either way. And that's when Kirk yeah, says, they, like, they, Spock, I've happened. got to know either way. Um, they, they then, that happened. Yeah. 
but then yeah. they had the intimate relationship and then mm -hmm. he came in after that and he was more grounded even though he was simulated on that high and um he was more grounded because he knew that she was going to die and that was when we reached the climax of that story i think in terms of okay we've had this romantic escapade but now let's get back to business because we have yeah. been you know sidelining the main premise well premise as it's pronounced supposedly well. apparently uh for the last 40 minutes so then eventually we get back into it you think okay spock has been doing this thing so it's not being a complete waste of time yeah. so it, no, again it's, it's just uh, payoff you just have to wait for it it's building up the story because you kind of have to see like it has to devote time to showing Kirk fall in love with this woman and make that believable. Um, yeah. Otherwise, there's just no tragedy in him having to let her die. Uh, so you have to have that going on under the surface. And at the same time, Spock has to be there as basically an exposition machine for the audience to to be able to eventually say, ah, the change was McCoy saved her and mm. she's meant to die. Even so though I, I found really the music that played every time they made eye contact so cringe-inducing. It's very, yeah, it's very... They said one sentence music. to each other and then... <laughs> romantic music. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, you are right. Even even every time I've noticed, uh, like I've watched this, I've noticed the same thing that um, they kind of show Chatner leaning in for the kiss and then the scene just literally, as you said, it's edited and cuts to the, the next time he walks into the apartment and he's got shopping or whatever or something uh, and he walks in and asks Spock how well he's done and that's when Spock's like, oh, Captain, you're not going to like this. Turns out... She has to die, and that's when the captain said, "Well, but I'm in love with her. Oh, well, tough. She must die." You know? <laughs> um, but having said that, I do think again, if you want a perfect summation of the original series, right there, it is basically Spock does all the work and provides the exposition. Kirk just wants to get laid. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> am I wrong, DK? <laughs> Not in the least. <laughs> exactly so no but in, i mean to, speaking of edith it's a little bit getting into like character stuff and that but i love this character i think every line she has is just such a gem like there's a reason that if you look up like star trek memes and motivational speeches and stuff it's almost all stuff that edith keeler said it's just so rich um yeah like and like i said earlier if you want star trek's ideology summed up just look up joan collins dialogue in this episode it's all yeah. there for you uh, and I love that. But again, I do find it a bit crushing that we're now six decades later and yet the ideas that are looked upon as ridiculous in 1930 are still kind of like, no money, give all the money towards exploration instead of killing, you're insane. It's like, yeah. man, we really haven't developed any further, have we? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sad times, I guess. Well, that's a depressing thought. <laughs> Why did I write that down? Yeesh. <laughs> so yeah, I'm guessing, like I said, you didn't necessarily pick up on the whole point of her ideology at first, Will, like that, that's why she's preaching about effectively wanting to do the Star Trek future and there's even that line about Spock, I think, says she had the right ideas and then, but it was at the wrong time yeah. um, because she'd, mm. have, she'd have been, she'd have fit in perfectly in like Starfleet or whatever, but in 1930, there's just no room for that. So yeah, it's a shame. Uh, but what do you think about the character of Edith, uh, Will? We'll ask you first. I thought she was a pretty strong female character for the time, especially. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, because she has like a focus point and she gets all the agency. And like I said, even everything she does is, is to help people. Like she helps Kirk and Spock, even though they've been nicking stuff. She uh, basically immediately, she's not stupid because she immediately clocks that Spock has nicked them little tools. 
Uh, and yeah. you know, he just says, "Well, I I would need them for my work, but I promised they were going to be given back in the morning." Which yeah. is going to have a you know. <laughs> one more question. One more question. Yeah, I forgot about this whole thing. You know how Spock read that article and then she died in a road accident. Yeah. Yeah. So how was I supposed to buy into her falling down the stairs when we knew that she was going to die in a car accident? That Spock says, oh, that could have been it just right there and then. But I was like, no, yeah. dies in a car accident, not down the stairs. So what's going it's, on? Yeah, I mean, Kirk more or less says that because he says, well, it wouldn't have happened now because McCoy isn't here and he would have had to be here to do the preventing or whatever. And then Spock just gives some kind of hand wavy line like, well, we don't know exactly how it'll happen. It could be in flux or whatever. But yeah, you're right. It is kind of a continuity. That's right. in flux, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's just there basically to show you on a scripting level, it's to show you that Kirk's natural instinct would always be to save her life. Yeah. And so it's even more poignant that like at the very end, he has to do the opposite and stop McCoy from saving her. Uh, oh, and it wouldn't be, you know, it's the question of, is there a whole paradox? Is what a paradox? Well, think about it. The doctor goes into the portal and then the Enterprise goes skew with and whatever. So what mm. got them to that planet in the first place if the starship never existed? Well, that's how the thing, come, yeah. That's how come the, they yeah. disappeared, but not the, the landing crew? Yeah, that's the nature of time travel, basically. He, he went back and changed something which changed their reality, but if their reality was changed, then how did he go back? It's, it's just an paradox. aspect of it's just, Yeah, it's just an aspect of sci-fi that would be touched yeah. upon nowadays, but it just wasn't then. Yeah, so, yeah I just that, thought I'd mention it. No, no, that does it a lot, like I said, and it's one of those things that you kind of have to just roll with. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, nowadays they would just say, well, it was a bootstrap paradox, and most people, have, because we've watched that much sort of time travel stuff, would be like, no, nah, fair enough. Yeah, DK, I was going to ask you, what do you think of Edith Keeler? Or is that a silly question? It is a silly question. I, I think <laughs> she's obviously, you know, there were so many love interests over the series for Kirk. Yeah. But she's a she's a class above because she's a, an actual, you know, developed character. I mean, I'm not, I'm go, going back to her first episode with Terry Gar. I don't, you know, get me wrong, Terry Gar's a fantastic actress, but she wasn't afforded much to work with. And for no. the majority of the episodes with a female guest star, that's what you know they had to yeah. put up with. This, she's just, she's by far above and beyond most of the characters that were actually written for the show, especially as a Kirk love interest. She's a character yeah. in her own right, and and I mean, I'm I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of John Collins, but uh, yeah, I think she shines <sighs> in there. Heathen. <laughs> I had to. I was forced. Forced to watch Dynasty with my parents. I haven't. I, I have a story that will touch upon all of this. And so, before you go any further, let me say, <laughs> um, I I don't know if you got. I've mentioned this before, probably, but I don't know if uh, if you ever saw DK when Star Trek was thirty years old in nineteen ninety six. They did a big special event, um, at like a theater in America, and it was like recorded. It was on TV, and the only reason I've seen so much of it is that it was a, an extra videotape when you bought the first. Um, at that point, I think seven or eight Star Trek movies uh, of yeah. Star Trek 30 years and beyond. Uh, and it was just, you know, they had skits like the cast of Frasier were originally the cast of Voyager. How would that have looked? Ha -ha. Um, but then they had a bunch of people like who starred in Star Trek talking about it. And one of the, I'm hoping you can find it on YouTube because it's fascinating. One of the talking so people on stage that gives a talk is Joan Collins. And she talks about like how she was offered the job in Star Trek and she thought, 
oh, it's amazing, I'm going to be playing the queen of the universe and get skimpy outfits and whatever else. And then she arrived on set and was told, no, no, you're playing a you know, a dowdy social worker in 1930. There you go. Um, <laughs> but she says during that special that even though it's a one-off guest role, it's the thing that she's most proud of in her career. And in her own words, nowadays, if somebody recognizes her on the street and says, aren't you Alexis Carrington, that bitch from Dynasty? She always turns around with a sweet smile and says, no, I'm Edith Keeler, depression-era social worker from Star Trek, which I think is just beautiful. Oh, <laughs> quite... oh she, she's kind of gone up in my estimation with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> so she absolutely <laughs> loves this story. She's mentioned many a time she... She's so proud of it. And Shatner, I think, has declared this his favorite episode on one of the like captains pick their favorites DVD sets and things. Yeah, um, so well, I will say, Will Shatner's performance in this was sublime. It was so good. It's better than he yeah. usually is, even. You know yeah. what I mean? So, so yeah. I'm not surprised that he would rank it amongst his favorites because, you know, that's this is going to be one of those that I, if I was William Shatner, I would look back on it and think, oh, bloody hell, I did a great job there. I love this I episode good. as a result. Exactly, yeah. I will say, though, DK, that you like this. Uh, he did say on the, I think it's the Captain's Log fan collective, that this was his favourite episode and it was his pick. But he was interviewed before then for a book, and he apparently said his favourite episode at that point was The Devil in the Dark. So he probably has two favourites. Oh, well. <laughs> I, don't, I can't really blame him with either. But, like, even outside of the love story um, and everything, I love that it kind of, it still has character development for the Star Trek characters, which I'm going to assume is DC Fontana because she's good at that kind of thing. Um, but even when Edith's kind of like trying to suss Kirk and Spock and then tell them who they are, I love that line about, what is it? Um, she, she says, you'd feel like you don't belong here. And then when Spock says, well, where would you say we belong? She says, you belong by his side, like you've always been there and you always will. I was like, dang, that's straight to the core. And then even when immediately after that, Spock says, oh, the device is ready. And then he sort of cuts himself off and she says, Captain, even when you don't say it, you do. <laughs> I was like, oh, that is just sublime dialogue. Yeah. I love every second of it. So, yeah. I've already mentioned, yeah, I love how the tricorder is just a handy way to show both timelines and what ultimately has to happen. It's simple, but it's effective. Um, and again, no finer line of dialogue or summation of Star Trek than, I'll say it again, I think one day they're going to take all the money they spend on war and death and make them spend it on life. Brilliant. Uh but yeah, let's talk a little bit about this. This scene with the homeless guy vaporizing himself. DK, well, I what is seen that it, about? So I'm completely out with it. Yeah, well, obviously you you didn't see that scene. But yeah, DK, what's that about? Any thoughts on that one? <laughs> it's a bit harsh. I'll, I'll, yeah. You know, I'll give it. I mean, obviously, they, they, you know, they're trying to say, you know, this dude's coming. He's not from here. He's got advanced technology. And we're messing around with this stuff. And by messing around with it, we're not quite sure what's going to happen i mean i kind of see it as a a kind of subtext that's referring back yeah. to the harnessing great energies thing but at the same time i mean is it punishment for what he said about her because i'm it, i am right he's the same guy from uh saying you know it comes with a price back in the soup kitchen i think oh, right, it's okay. the yeah and it kind of seems like her. yeah it kind of seems like punishment for that and but like, what what yeah. it is very harsh. I mean, this poor it's guy is just jarring, trying to live, yeah. and yep, he's gone. It's so jarring, and I've never been able to put my finger on like quite why it's there, which is why I think it's probably cut in most versions because it adds nothing. But I've always tried to analyze like why is it there? Because I'm like that with things, especially things I've seen a lot. And all I can come up with is that it's there to emphasize the dangers of McCoy, like even being there. 
Um, yeah. In that, you know, that like they've already said he can, he's going to change time, he's going to save Edith or whatever. And it's to point out, like, oh, you, look, we're in the wrong place and this is dangerous. <laughs> There's a million things that could go wrong and this is just one of them. But yeah, I kind of agree with the people that cut it because it's not a scene I don't think that you need. Um, it doesn't add anything that, to know. my point, to, you know, to no. my mind. Obviously, Will hasn't even seen that scene, so he would probably agree. So. Hi, guys, I'm also here. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I've mentioned already. I, I like that they say Edith was right, but it was at the wrong time. Uh, she continues to be kind. She's even kind to McCoy when he ends up at the mission. And I kind of like, in terms of like you mentioned, DK. There's things that you sometimes forget, even if you've seen it a load. I always forget like how well DeForest Kelly plays the gradual like sobering up of McCoy. I guess how he's yeah. still like the the yeah, I'm gonna kill me or whatever, and then. Oh, I'm, where am I? I was going to ask you, but now I won't. Because... The situation as time went on. Yeah, and exactly. was, as he was super up as well, so he pitched the performance like to perfection. Like the performances in this episode, I've just got to say, are great. Even Spock. Oh, uh, forgive me Spock, for yeah. forgetting the name. What yeah, is yeah it? Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. Uh, that guy. Uh, even though he had a, such a small role, he still did something with it. Especially when it was the um, oh, what do you call it? The the scene on the stairs. And he yeah. was like, oh, I didn't mean to intrude. And I was like, that's just so subtly well done. And I thought, yeah. yeah. It, it, it complimented the actual scene and scenario, I'd say. Oh, I agree. That's why I mentioned yeah. As an actor, I'd say. Yeah. That's why I mentioned I like the lines that are there. Even You might say that kind of for no reason, but like when she points out, like, look, you two clearly, you always belong at his side. That's, I've, I've nailed this <laughs> about you. Um, yeah. And you believe yeah. it entirely that she can pick up on that because their chemistry is oh, yeah. so good in the first place. Oh, 100%, yeah. definitely. I mean, yeah, there's a reason why the very first ever fan fictions are basically Kirk and Spock in a in a relationship. Because right. sense that she does get that because you need some establishment of connection between, you know, the man and the woman. Again, mm -hmm. I forgot her name. I do apologize. Edith. But, uh, Edith, exactly. So you need to have some reason for Edith to be interested in uh, Kirk, so for her yeah. to be able to read him like that, yeah. like that, that does the groundwork for the relationship. So, yeah, I do appreciate that as well. Because, as you said, you kind of have to wonder given that they're like 400 years apart, what are they, what have they got in common? And it even does have the line where he kind of he listens intently to her good ideas because, like, it's the, they connect about space, from. don't they? And just they connect about her future ideas. Yeah, and he says like, "Oh yeah, people they'll harness these powers, and we'll be kind, and we'll explore." And um, Kirk, I think, says, "We we have the same thoughts. We're on the same page completely." I and mean, I that's like, after so, yeah, like the moon landing. It's because she like raves about the moon landing, and then she he laughs, and then she's yeah. like, "Oh, we um, yeah." Why is it so, so bizarre to think that man might land on the moon? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. then they have that little exchange about how they uh, think so much alike because they're ultimate yep. goal is to explore and you know they're not interested in the world's problems they're more interested in putting one step forward into the future oh and, uh, so <laughs> the exploration aspect is what drew them together i'd say yeah which makes Definitely. sense because this is i can imagine this is very different to what star trek usually is so it's a bit more of mm. a change of pace to so to incorporate some sci-fi aspects in that respect so a character that you have to relate to also loves what Star Trek's all about. That yeah. makes sense, and it gives you some familiarity as a recurring oh, viewer yeah. of Star Trek. Because I can't imagine I... this is uh, episodes you'd see every week. No, well, certainly the time travel aspect isn't something that would come up 
every episode. But um, I, th- I think you're right. And I think part of the reason for that is that you as the audience member have to fall in love with Edith Keeler a little bit as well. And the logic there is, well, if they're watching Star Trek, they probably are like one of these dreamers that wants a better future. So yeah. if she has that element I mean, to her character. I didn't know? cry when she died, but bloody hell it hit. Yeah. Oh, it's it's. I'll get into why and everything. Yeah, the truck hit her. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a combination of things for me that makes it uh, powerful, but I'll get into that later and try not to cry. (laughs) Again. Um, Again. Every time I watch it, seriously, every flipping time. But um, oh yeah, that's what I was going to say. So yeah, related to that, I also like that they kind of even have that bit of dialogue when. Again, she points out, like, oh, let me help, because that's very much her nature. And Kirk says something about, oh, let me help. Years from now, somebody will write a book a book about yeah. how um, <laughs> how those those three words are the most important three words in the English language, even above I love you. And then she says, what do you mean, going to write that? And he says, well, silly question. Here's a silly answer. He'll come from a planet over there in that star system. And instead of being like, you crazy fool, she's like, oh. And dreaming away and like looking up at the stars and and she fully is like what well where where does he i mean will he come from and i'm like see she's going with it and everything and she never yeah. questions anything she's never like mean to mccoy when he's like well this is clearly all an illusion but i've decided you're not yeah <laughs> but uh yeah i just love her i think she's great um mm. Oh, this is a random note, but um, not that you'll know this, Will, but I love that one of the ongoing things throughout the original series is McCoy's I'm a doctor, not a dot, dot, dot. So (laughs) it appears multiple times it's become, again, a running joke. And uh, yeah, I appreciate in this one when um, she's talking about, I have a friend that thinks like you, maybe you should talk to them. And McCoy just says, I'm a doctor, not a psychiatrist. Mm. Yep. yeah, and then but he, he phrases it slightly different, doesn't he? he? Says I'm a, I think he says I'm a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. Yes, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, that's just that's just everything. for the pedants in the audience, of course. Um, I want that T-shirt though, because there's everything in the entire series. Like I'm a doctor, not a what moonshot conductor, elevator, <laughs> multiple other things. And there's a T-shirt that you can get that's just like. It's one square with like a stethoscope or whatever and a tick, and then another bunch of squares that all crossed out, and it is like moonshot conductors. I got it or whatever. See, I <laughs> wondered if there's a t-shirt out there just saying Edith Keeler must die. There is. There, it's yeah. is there. <laughs> yep. Oh. <laughs> there's tons of merch that just says Edith Keeler must die exclamation mark. Yep. <laughs> oh, there goes my money making schemes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I do like again. It's it's kind of cliche now, but the idea that they almost cross each other and just miss meeting up with McCoy and Spock and whatnot is kind oh, of cool. this, um, the soup kitchen. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because again, as the audience member, especially if you're rewatching it, you're like, ah, oh, if only you'd spot him, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, pointing out the obvious, but sometimes the audience needs it. You know, millions will die who did not die before. If Kirk saves her, all right, fine. Um, and yeah, like I said, I, I, for me, I think that culminating moment just is a moment of just sheer strength and impact for me. Uh, but like I said, it's it's for a, a number of reasons. Obviously, there's the obvious, like a character that you've grown to at least like has died. Um, and mm. yes, it's perhaps a bit cheesy that it does the whole crash zoom thing, but it never bothered me that much. It gets me isn't that it actually happens? Uh, it's a it's a kind of the the double triple gut punch of. The fact that Spock shouts to Kirk to stop his natural instinct to help her. Kirk then has to hold back McCoy. The camera specifically shows Kirk's face 
that he's like wincing as he has to pull him back. I'm gonna cry, you know. <laughs> Just so you know. And um, McCoy like really railing against Kirk. That's what I love. This line of dialogue stuck with me like you know nightmare ingrained in your brain since childhood, which is McCoy really got him about. Oh, what are you doing, Jim? It's ridiculous. I could have saved it. Do you know what you did? And then just the resigned way that Nimoy Spock goes, he knows, Doctor. He knows. Like, and, just... and to be fair, that now makes sense about the planet, like uh, you know, shifting color when yeah. the time diverts because and uh, Spock says yes he does know what he's done and then we yeah. get back onto Kirk and then it transitions from his head into the planet so yeah. if the planet reverts the color then that also has like a double meaning yes he knows that he stops you from saving her but also means that he saved time or whatever yeah that I think I always yeah I always just read it as more like he's well aware of what he's done because it would have affected him way more than it affected you that you couldn't save her you know what I mean so um, mm. But yeah, I do love, they, they do explain earlier as well. It, again, if you missed the line, it's a bit of a shame because you'd miss it that the Guardian says, if you correct the mistake, then for whatever reason, because I'm magic, you'll end up here and everything will be as it was. So yes, they do, just as you said, once Kirk's done it, you see him kind of crying on McCoy's shoulder, then it cuts back and they just walk through and they're back in their uniforms and everything and everything's just as it was before. And I'm like, all right, at least you explained that would happen. That's fair enough. Um, but again, in terms of just gut punch and great deliveries, the way that the Guardian sort of offers itself and it's like many things, many great journeys are possible with me. Let me be your guide. And Kirk just with barely disguised contempt just says, let's get the hell out of here. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's amazing. Like, I just don't want to indulge this thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know people, you know, have a tendency to, to slag Shatner off for hamming it up and stuff. But mm. when you look at him in things like this, he really yeah. can be a good performer. I've always said that. I mean, I'm not going to spoil what happens, but the end of Star Trek Three gets me a wreck every single time. I thought he was about to say a wreck. Then. <laughs> no, it makes me an emotional wreck. Then he gets wreck me a wreck. <laughs> oh, man, just thinking about that scene makes me... Oh. <laughs> anyway, oh, now I want to watch Star Trek Three. Damn it. Why mm. do I do this to myself? Uh, anyway, so yeah, that's kind of all I had about writing and the overall plot but we've touched on some other things in that uh, did you guys have any other last thoughts i don't want to like railroad you <laughs> I'm, I'm aware i'm talking a lot no no i mean i think we've gone over it uh yeah it's a different script from what was originally envisaged but i just i just love it i, yeah. I don't think anything could have possibly sorry harlan wherever you are i don't think anything could have improved what we had trust me it isn't better if you if you have his script, like I said, or the comic book or whatever, it's not better at all. Yeah, and I thoroughly. I, I have a tendency to stay away from from you know these alternate things when they bring them out later as comic books, like the City on Jade Forever, like when they did Dirt Sailing's Twilight Zone, uh, right. sorry, Planet of the Apes. It, the, right, right. I know how it appeals to some people, but I've just never been that interested in picking them up. The Twilight yeah. Zone TV show is actually really good, so I do recommend it to anyone that's listening. Oh no no! Yeah, I don't no, need like Twilight Zone. I love Twilight Zone, but they 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 released Rod Serling's script for Planet of the Apes in comic book form a few years ago. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, I'm always fascinated. Like I'm I I loved reading Kevin Smith's um, Superman Lives script and stuff um, to see what might have been. So did you want to see anything else? I mean, you already have. But about the acting, is there any? Is there? Do you think like a bad performance or a, a weaker one in the episode somewhere? Not really, even the guest stars. Well, I wouldn't say they're stars, just like the guest actors in terms of like the homeless man, for example, uh, mm. who drops the milk bottle in the start. Like that's and then he himself. <laughs> it, oh yeah, 
him shelling up and him just like being completely dumbstruck by this person who I would suppose he would interpret as, you know, an alien being or something really, really bizarre because he just teleported out of nowhere and he's weirdly dressed. So for him to be so, you know, starstruck and unresponsive to the questions, you could say, oh, no, it's just because he thinks he's drunk. Whereas I would say no, it's because he's literally just teleported out of nowhere and because he's Mm. dressed so bizarrely. He must be an alien being or something like that. So yeah. even down to the guest actors, for example, the homeless man, even before he vaporized himself, I thought, yeah, yeah around the board, across the board, should I say, yeah, stellar. But no, I, I don't know if you heard me, but I was saying it's interesting that you noted that, like I said, like Nichelle Nichols gets two lines, even though she's one of the supposed main cast and she's amazing with them. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I'm scared, Captain, and... Uh, Captain, we can't reach the Enterprise or whatever it is she says, and I'm like, yeah, she's great with barely anything. So, again, can't I can't fault any of the performances, no. but I'm not going to repeat myself, uh, except to say that yeah, I agree with you. I think it's Shatner's absolute, probably his best performance for me. Just the utter yeah. heartbreak and everything, and the way that I I fully believe that they're falling in love. Admittedly, it is helped by the fact that the director does that old school thing of like every time you show John Collins' face, it's do that like weird misty filter. As if we aren't able to oh, put right. two and two together, that Get this a is a super Vaseline and just chuck yeah, exactly. it on the lens. Exactly, yeah. I'm like, yo, she's clearly a beautiful woman. We don't need this, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'll move on then to the direction. Talking about that, the direction by uh, Joseph Pevney, I think, mostly outstanding. Um, yeah. And if this is the direction, which I guess it kind of is, I will say, unfortunately, I do think the original effects are kind of bad. Um, now that I've watched it with them, uh, I just noticed, for example, that whenever the Enterprise in space is seen, it's quite clearly like a, a cutout that's been stuck on there. You can see the joins and stuff. And if you get a chance to watch this episode with the enhanced effects, I will just say do that. It slightly improves. I mean, it's not a bad episode anyway, but I do think it just adds a little bit extra to it that way. Um, I watched the, the remastered one, so I, I, mean, I can't uh, really remember. But I mean, credit where it's due. I mean, you, we are talking the 60s here. But no, as I was saying, I love those scenes. I even made a point. Like, I think the scenes of them leaping through are really good. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm intrigued to know what you think, Will, as somebody who's probably way more used to things like this. Do you think it was well done or just good for the time? <laughs> be fair, honestly, I'd probably praise it more than you would <laughs> in, in that fair respect. Enough. Because you're like, oh, that wasn't too good. I think no. Um, directionally, like, especially towards the start on that planet, I thought it was pretty good, even if I do agree that the, the Guardian, the portal, was rather disappointing in terms of like just the general scale because yes it's going to be this cool thing and it does light up it does talk it does really smoke but other than that in the contrast of the planet not really for me like we see them teleport and you think okay so the planet's this large scale set thing and then we cut to what they're so enthralled about and it's this weird looking donut donut I, I didn't think that would translate. That's one of the. To be honest, I, think you, I get yeah. enthralled whenever I see a donut. So <laughs> I'm sure we all do, yeah. Yeah, but no, I, I thought that was one of the things that wouldn't necessarily translate. Like it means a lot to geeky Trek fans because we know of it. But when you break it down objectively, and I look at it, yes, it is kind of. It's just a ring. You know what? What's exciting? But like I said, I, I will say, like you, like you said again, I appreciate that they made it like light up, and especially I think they did a great job in casting the dude who does the voice and giving him the like booming mic effect of "I am the Guardian, you yeah. are here since before time," and whatever else. It ain't so, what you've got; it's what you do with it. 
Exactly, yeah. And like Will said, like he said, it was really good effects for the 60s when they started showing the clips through the time portal. And I was like, yeah, because it's mostly just scenes from movies, you know? So, but I said, sometimes the simple things are the most effective. So, you know, go with it. But did you guys have any other notes on direction? I've got nothing. I, I, I will admit, I did like the scene with the cop in the alleyway. I just think it's that line that spoils it. I oh I agree. I, I mean I like that the the kind of nature of the comedy I think works for me that apparently Gene Kuhn wrote apart from that line. So the nature of Kirk saying, "Well, this time's so primitive, we're going to have no problem." Steals the clothes, walks away, and then a cop's just there, like, <clears throat> and Spock's like, "You were saying, Captain, it was going to be yeah. easily explained." I was like, "That works." I just don't like that it just goes straight yeah. to a racist place, you know? Yeah, um, obviously, you know, a different time and stuff, but. As we said, it's it's just not aged well, and it's a shame no. because it. Other than that, it it it's pitch perfect. The annoying thing is as well that um, I don't. You probably won't remember this because you hate the episode, but like Voyager, when it comes to Future's End, has Tuvok traveling back in time, and instead of feeling the need to have to explain it with racism or whatever else, Tuvok literally just says they're just a family trait, and that's all you need. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. So it's a yeah. family trait that we have. Yeah, I'm a little bit sensitive about it. Shut up move on you know? yeah so, anyway um you so, could you could uh, have kind uh, of got away with it if you know just say if you even if you did just say industrial accident you know yeah and, yeah that's the thing that, that's exactly cut it there with like well he had an unfortunate accident but it's the way kirk goes with a mechanical rice picker and i'm like oh yeah it has to be a rice picker because you said chinese and whatever yeah oh. <laughs> shut up but um, anyway, uh, the next, the only sort of last section that I've got before I talk about like reception and audience uh, response and stuff is just the sounds and the music of the episode. Uh, I do have a little bit of information here. Um, according to uh, the book, The Music of Star Trek, uh, Fred Steiner takes credit for scoring new music in this app. Uh, although it is sparse, there's only a few cues. Uh, most of the episode was used, tracked with the prior music, including stuff by Joseph Mullendore. Gerald Freed and Alexander Courage. There's music used from the episode Shawley or reused, um, including including the score for the police chase and some humorous cues. Uh, most of the music accompanying the romance of Kirk and Edith is actually taken from the episode The Conscience of the King, which I didn't know. And I was going to praise that and think like, oh, it's really well done. It underscores the romance brilliantly. But yeah, <laughs> see, I didn't know that. I thought this was a really good soundtrack because they keep they, they yeah. kept going back to you know, good night, sweetheart, and I like the yeah. little whimsical version of the Trek theme where they're trying to steal the clothes, yeah. and then later sure. on in the episode where you've got that kind of downbeat version. I think it would just after uh, he stopped to falling on the stairs, and I thought this oh, is yeah. a really good soundtrack, but I didn't know a lot of it was. Uh, prior used well i suppose that we can complement the use of it because it all works really well but the fact that it's not made for the episode is a bit of a, a down point i guess um but yeah in in terms of if there are any pedants in the audience uh, because you mentioned that i do have to say yes i am aware that good night sweetheart was actually released in 1931 it is a continuity error they changed mm-hmm. time all right <laughs> whatever mccoy did changed time so much that that came out a year early shush Um, Right, so yeah, as I said, I have quite a lot about the reception of this episode in terms of how people reacted to it. Um, But before I get to that and then the audience and our stuff, have you guys got any other thoughts about the episode at all? No. No, just awesome. Awesome. Uh, Right, then, uh, as I was saying, uh, in terms of the reception with regards to the city on the edge of forever, 
uh, as I kind of touched on earlier, Joan Collins has stated, to this day, people still want to talk about that episode. Some remember me more for that than anything else I've done. I'm amazed at the enduring popularity of Star Trek and particularly of that episode. Uh, she adds, at the time, none of us would have predicted the longevity of the show. I couldn't be more pleased or more honoured to be part of Star Trek history. So there we go. Uh, I mentioned Chapman picking it. So cool, you know. Like yeah, being a definitely. character in the first series of a massive, massive show that evolves into being so massive. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like like she says, when she took the role, it wasn't like I'm taking a role in this thing that will become huge. It was like, yeah, it's a job. Yeah. <laughs> so, that must be yeah. so cool. It's just like an actor like, to have in your CV, though. Like, oh, yeah. when first appearances on the Star Trek original series, like, oh, that's so cool. When you think she was in one episode, and yet, like I said, she still seems like because she could be like iffy about it and not talk about it, or say like, "Oh, it's a nerd thing" or whatever. But she still does conventions and stuff, or at least talks about it and stuff. And she is. I mean, she's considering she's just in one episode. I think a lot of fans consider her kind of pivotal. Yeah, definitely. a lot of them, me included. I mean, my memory's for crap, but you know, uh, a lot of them couldn't mention and uh, many female guest stars by by the character name. But you say yeah. to pretty much any Star Trek fan, Edith Keeler, they know exactly who you're talking yeah, about. Stop crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, uh, in terms of other reception, this episode was chosen by Eugene Rod Roddenberry, the son of Gene, uh, to be his favorite episode. Um, the book Star Trek, the book Star Trek <laughs> One Hundred One uh, on page seventeen, the book by Terry Erdman and Paula M. Block lists this episode as one of. 10 essential episodes from the original Star Trek series. Uh, Gene Roddenberry himself picked it as one of his 10 favorite episodes for the franchise's 25th anniversary. Five years later, TV Guide ranked this as the best Star Trek episode for the celebration of the franchise's 30th anniversary. By popular acclaim, this is the single best episode of the original series, earning a 1968 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. It was 25 years before another television program received that honor. That was, again, Star Trek, Next Generation's The Inner Light. Um, TV Guide also ranked at number 68 in their 100 most memorable moments in TV history in July 1995 uh, and also featured it in another issue on the 100 greatest TV episodes of all time so there we go <laughs> uh, yeah that's suffice to say it's quite popular I assume uh, but speaking of which I'm going to move us to our uh, next sort of final little mini section uh, if I can find it uh, where are we? And that is going to be the audience interaction, or as I like to call it, to keep things trekky, subspace communications. Incoming transmission. <laughs> um, so we did put out a sort of social media message. Uh, as is often the case, some episodes, it's like feast or famine. And in this case, we didn't get a lot of responses. Uh, but I do actually have a winner of the Hot Take Award that myself and DK have started occasionally popping into these things. Uh in both of our different podcasts. Uh, are you ready for this? <laughs> um, this is this is from at Camos Mills, who, who says about this episode, I like it, but it's not all it's cut out to be, in my opinion. As my dad once put it, there are multiple Star Trek episodes where a character falls in and has doomed love. This is one of them. Hot take, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I then just tweeted, can we talk about this episode at a different time? And Beyond Trek podcast said, sure. This is one of the greatest episodes in science fiction written by Harlan Ellison and featuring top tier guest performance by Joan Collins and an existential dilemma that took an entire resolve of Duranium to watch. 
True. Um, he says, I think the most major, or they say, I think the most major nitpick I have with it is that its climax is a product of its era. Today, we would call Edith's death bridging, and it happens all too often to women characters in the 60s as a plot point for the male lead to safely express emotion while fulfilling his destiny, which I can't disagree with, I guess. But No. Um, I then commented that, yeah, calling it written by Harlan Ellison was questionable, and uh, by Riker's beard, agrees with me and responded, frankly, having read his original script, I think the finished product is better. <laughs> so uh, Beyond Trek Podcast then replies, his original script was adapted into a four-part comic series in the last decade. It was very convoluted and would have been impossible to film. It probably wouldn't even make as much sense as the final product, and the episode made it about the people, not the mechanism. So, yeah, again, I think I'm kind of in agreement with almost everything there. So, uh, yeah. Any uh, any thoughts about anything so far from either of you guys before we wrap things up here? I think even those are being critical. They're uh, they do have good points, especially with the fridging thing. Yeah, but I yeah, think yeah. it was a um, you know I, I I've not watched much sixties TV bonanza things like that, but uh, mm. I can't say how how much of an original concept it was at that point. Yeah, see, I, I kind of give it a pass on that because it is literally integral to the plot, and it's more obvious in the, again, I'm, I'm kind of glad they didn't go with this, in the original script, but Kirk wanting to save her and then Kirk having to be stopped, and then there's a line, I think, in the original where someone says, like, she was so special that no woman was ever offered, like, the entire world or the whole of history for love and stuff, and I'm like, but I do personally think I agree with the logic of, it had to be Kirk doing it, didn't it? Or did, did you guys not agree with that, maybe? No, I, 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 I do think it was. And and with regards to the fridging, I always thought fridging was using the woman's death as a plot point to give the protagonist, you know, a story arc, as in he now wants revenge, not no, just no, not for the fact just... that it's... It... It's yeah. a pivotal anything point, that propels you know? the the anything that propels the plot of a male character, um, I guess is what it would what it would be. But yeah, it's debatable whether that's necessarily what this is because it's not e it's not even like Kirk mentions it ever again, unfortunately. So no, yeah. Anyway, um, but no, it's a fair point. Fair point. What about you, Will? Do you think? Well, first of all, do you think you agree with the change that it should it would have to have been Kirk and it's more powerful that way, or do you kind of agree with Alison? Sure, yeah. I was being explained, I was doing some grunts of acknowledgement and, you know, yes, it should absolutely have been Kirk. Awesome, awesome. Uh, I'll move us on then because uh, we've been here a while and I will say the next section would just be our favourite character moment and line in the episode. Spark, analysis. Um, so we'll start with favourite character. Uh, Will, I'll sandwich you in between so you're not feeling quite as on the spot, if that's all right with you. Oh, um, oof, geek sandwich, Will. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, suit you uh, so yeah we'll go to you first DK and ask who was your favourite character probably a dumb question but yeah yeah I mean it didn't really take it's a no brainer really I mean it is a strong performance from Shatner as Kirk but it's Edith it's gotta be She's the, she is the literal personification of Gene Roddenberry's vision yep <laughs> uh, yeah, I have to agree maybe not for the reasoning because I don't know the reasoning but yeah that's just names to me but um that's probably my favorite character as well for exact same reason as the William Shatner. Like you acknowledge that he, uh, William Shatner, put in a great performance. However, mm. the character you just get drawn more to Edith and to yeah. probably Anne's also very very sweet personality. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I'm going to bore the audience because again, that's a hat trick. I agree. It was Edith. I just put duh. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you think about it, she is the entire 
focal point. She's the center of the episode. And if it was a weaker actress or a weaker character, the episode falls apart, basically. So, yeah, yeah um, fair enough. Uh, so what is your favorite moment of the episode, DK? Uh, it's got to be that final scene. No happy ending mm. with them all sat around on the bridge laughing this time. Just Kirk's disgusted. Let's yeah. get the hell out of here. Yeah. He just leaves it on a you know on a very sour note, and I actually I credit them for having the the balls to do that. Yeah, again, I think it would have been nicer if we'd seen any emotional impact carry on beyond this episode in another week, but that was television. You had to reset at the end, and like you said, yeah. it was brave to end instead of like, well, at least everything's back to normal. We've done a good thing with Kirk. Just like, oh, <laughs> I guess I'll go back to the ship or whatever. I'm probably not doing that justice, but yeah, I agree with you. The fact the sheer frustration of oh, screw it. What was your favourite moment, Will, anyway? Uh, to be fair, it's probably that very moment before the whole hitting incident. Uh, it's because they're walking down the path and then they're outside like a theatre and the lights are really beautiful and I think that's mm. such a spectacle to behold yeah. and that's probably my favourite. It's so surreal and then you get the realisation of, oh, that's our doctor and then you run across the road and then you have the whole shit storm. But just before yeah. that, that was such a poignant moment. And, uh, yeah, you can I definitely tell that you're somebody who uh, has an interest in movie and is doing film production. Only you would pick as your favourite moment, basically, cinematography. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very much. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. my favourite moment was just literally um, the entirety of Edith's speech, basically. So she's already found them in the um, basement and stuff, and then they go up and she's giving her speech, starting with, I don't pretend to tell you how to find happiness and love when every day is a struggle to survive, but I do insist you do survive because the days and the years ahead are worth living for. And then, as I said, everything about, I think one day they're going to take all this power and we'll harness great energy and even the atom and we'll explore space and all the rest of it. So, um, yes, it is just a stealth way of me getting more than one line in, but that's going to be my favourite moment because it can encompass the entire speech. So <laughs> forgive the cheating. <laughs> but yeah, DK, what about you? What was your favourite line? Favourite line, strangely enough, it's the those are the days worth living for speech. Ah, fair enough. <laughs> Will, what about you? Oh, bloody hell, that's putting me on the spot. Um, I didn't actually think of a favourite line. That's um, good. Now I have to pass on that one. That's okay. Um, well, my favourite line is simply, he knows, Doctor, he knows. For sure. Right, sure. I'll be born as well and second that. Second that. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Works for me. Makes <laughs> me look good anyway, doesn't it? <laughs> Grand. So, uh, yeah, so that all, all, all that's left to do then is to give our conclusions and our score out of five stars or five Starfleet Deltas. Uh, shall we do it the same way? Shall I just uh, sandwich you in between the two of us, Will? <laughs> do, you want me, do you want me to get over and done with? <laughs> I, can't, you, I, can't, you I can't imagine the UK's got paragraphs like last time. Whereas we're gonna, I kind of do as well, but yeah. We're gonna end up <laughs> if called, you just... gonna, it's going to end up being called Finger Cuff Templar. <laughs> I swear if you just see it decent and a score, I'm going to scream. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, to be fair, I hope I uh, come across well in the edit, especially with my thoughts. I know Mike spoke a lot more than me and DK, but uh, I hope I, I know, have interested you to a point where you have continued listening to this point. And as for the episodes, uh, as I said to Mike before we began recording, I think this would do very well with a rewatch. I don't think it's good to just review it on one watch. I would definitely like to rewatch and then, um, okay. with the hindsight of the end, uh, I'd probably be able to is, appreciate what I was going with towards the start, especially with the explanations that I now know from you. Is so, it the first episode yeah. that you've watched so far that you'd 
that you wanted to rewatch out of curiosity? Yes. Yes, I, I see so because I don't think the future tense has a novelty of rewatching it. Yeah. You know, rewatch novelty. I wouldn't put I wouldn't sit down and watch that again just because I don't think it needs a rewatch. No, At least once you know the while. mysteries, it's kind of yeah, yeah. well that you need to rewatch it to actually appreciate the very clear, excellent story. Like I said to you privately, it excels in some places, but just mm. the premise of it completely shot my confidence that it was going to be good. So I messaged you again, Michael. I was saying, I this is one I'm going to have to stick out to the very end to actually pass mm. judgment on, but it's, it's excelling in some areas, and that's how I really conclude. And yeah, I just need to rewatch it so I can appreciate where the aspects that did excel more so now that I know a bit more about the plot. So, yeah. Sometimes that happens, that's fair. Um, yeah, so personally, uh, probably a bit low, so I, I'm sorry for butchering the average score, but I would give it a 3.5 out of 5. A 7 out of 10, which for me is a good score. I think this is, that is That is good, to be fair. That is, I mean, by any standard, 7 out of 10 is above average, let's say, yeah. at the very least. So, okay, that's fair enough. Um, Wait a minute. EK, do you want to go next? now? Sorry? Are we doing it out of 10? No, no, no. no. He, I, I he gave it 3.5. He gave 3.5, but said, you know, and put it in other terms, that's 7 out of 10. So oh, fair enough. it's not a bad score by any means. 3.5 deltas, by the way. That's me. Yes. Stop. <laughs> uh, did you want to go next for your conclusion on score? Yeah, I'll do it if, if you've got an essay. Uh, I have. <laughs> arguably the first true classic in Star Trek, and deservedly so. Ellison may not have been entirely happy with the changes made to his script, but the result is not only a great episode of one of the longest-running sci-fi shows out there, but a great hour of TV, period. What begins as a run-of-the-mill episode quickly morphs into a sweeping story of love, sacrifice, and predestination. Fantastic concept, iconic imagery, some of which is still used to this day, solid performances from the leads, and an unforgettable ending help make this a must-see. Some decisions may not have aged all that well, but to my mind, this treads the fine line between time travel and its consequences better than most, including many episodes we've looked at this season. And it's just another example of just what Trek can be in the right hands. And it's a 4.5 out of 5 for me. Ooh, why, why 4.5? <laughs> I don't like that line leaving me feeling uncomfortable. One line, though. I know, I know. Yeah, and, and, and if I'm being completely honest... As much as I love it, do I want to rank this alongside things such as The Visitor and Paper Moon? And I think it's just, as, as great as it is, as iconic as it is, I think it's, on, on my scale anyway, it's kind of just below those. Okay, yeah, what I said was, for me, I think this is just solid gold. Um, I know there have been tragic love stories before, tales of doomed love, and many that have used time travel or time itself as the barrier since. But in my opinion, none of them does it effectively as this. If that was all this episode was, it would be near enough to greatness, but the specific dilemma, the social commentary, every last thing about Edith as a character is just outstanding and a perfect way of summing up exactly why this franchise continues to appeal to people. We are all Edith Keeler, dreaming of that better world than the crap we live in. Um, additionally, even the fantastical or sci-fi elements are just cool. I love The Guardian of Forever from concept to execution, and the usage of changing history in this way as a focal plot point, again, has been used multiple times now because it is so effective, in my opinion, uh, but it was virtually revolutionary at the time. Ultimately, though, it's all about the delivery and the impact. I've seen the episode dozens of times, and yet I still cry. 
a very strong contender for my favorite episode of the entire franchise. I would give it a six out of five if I could, but for the sake of uh, logic and stupid keeping things uh, with the podcast fully, uh, you know, on the level, I'll go with five out of five. Okay, I don't know about you, but my heart drops. I thought he was giving it a six out of ten. Then I was like, oh, okay, that's <laughs> far off what I thought it was going to be. Oh, <laughs> when you said six, I was like, what? That's half a second. I was like, Whoa. no, no, I love, I love it. I, I. There's just certain things, I guess, with people that just hit you in a certain way. And for me, this is the the one that I would literally put above anything else. I'm I'm sorry to those of you that love the Visitor or Tony Paper Moon from DS9 or, you know, Far Beyond the Stars comes very close. I will grant you that from DS9. But for me, this is this is the episode. Um, and I think that's the reason it has the reception it does. I mean, it's won awards and everything. But there we go. That's the nature of the podcast. Uh, and regardless, the final score uh, between all three of us, when you average it, comes to four point three recurring i think so, none of us are going to strongly disagree with that no that's fair enough awesome uh well that concludes everything basically well, that, uh, that uh, means for... dk has the right opinion again well done dk closest <laughs> to the average in fact bang on the average kind of if, if we'll, round we'll see how the audience reacts when the episode goes out no but Mike, like <laughs> yeah. i did say yeah, when the burning my effigy you know it uh, just remains for me to thank will for joining us a second time this series uh in looking at all things time travel with us. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll have you back on at some point between, uh, well, you're definitely going to be on the other podcast talking about film, but we'll see if we can win you over with some Star Trek yet, I guess. Um, I, that was my strong attempt that failed. And uh, yeah, DK, thanks for joining us as always. Um, Thank you. Been a pleasure. Uh, any uh, last um, sign-offs for the audience before we, we do? Sorry. I'm no, not... just the usual. Everything's in the description. Awesome. Please like... Um, Subscribe, share, tell your friends. Based on a format by Michael Wilson, a Will Templar. All that remains is for me to say again. Thank you so much to everybody for joining us. Thank you to my co-host and guest. And uh, join us again next week. In the meantime, remember, we are Starfleet. Live, Live long, long and, and prosper. prosper. Live long and prosper. You have been listening to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. The Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast is based on an idea by Michael Wilson and Will Templar. Follow the podcast on Twitter at HomeTrack, on Instagram at HomeStarTrekPodcast, or look for the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.